Welcome to the third season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. A hundred miles west of Portland, Oregon, lies Otter Rock, a small town with less than 200 residents nestled on the Pacific coast. Born in 1950 into a middle-class home, Randall Woodfield's mother raised him and his two older sisters, while his father worked at the phone company. In high school, Randy played basketball and football. At six feet tall and 170 pounds, he had the physique for it. Except that he didn't like to get hit, ever, by anyone. Randy was confident and interested in the ladies, and had no trouble attracting them, with his brooding brown eyes and naturally curly brown hair. Randy always showed up for practice and games, Yet his teammates always sensed a strangeness about him, but couldn't put their finger on it. What Randy tried to hide was that he had urges that he couldn't control, and he began exposing himself to women. The Portland Tribune reported that after one such incident occurred, he was arrested and charged. His parents took him to see a therapist, but they weren't overly concerned. The coaches at the high school found out about it and swept it under the rug. Then when Randy turned 18, his juvenile record was expunged, giving him a fresh start. Randy headed 500 miles east to Ontario, near the Ohio border. There he played football at a community college for the next two years. Living on campus, Randy kept his head down, stayed to himself, and played hard. He was definitely showing some talent on the field, but outside of sports, Randy didn't deal with rejection well. After he and his girlfriend broke up, he trashed her apartment. He was arrested and went to trial, but found not guilty. Then in 1971, Randy moved to Portland and lived off campus while attending university. He practiced his faith, joined a small Bible group, and played on the basketball team, the God Squad. Randy also joined the university track team and played football with the Vikings. He was fast, but often dropped passes. On the field, he continued to go out of his way to avoid contact and being hit. When the field was muddy, he somehow managed to walk off the field without a speck of mud on his jersey. Then word of Randy's past aggressions began to leak out, and his teammates looked at him differently. Randy couldn't hold his demons in any longer. Outwardly, he pretended to always do the right thing, but he started skipping games, went downtown, and trolled the strip clubs and dated the showgirls. 
Sports Illustrated reported that he continued to expose himself in public and was arrested numerous times and convicted twice. Randy was living a double life. That season, he caught five passes for 97 yards. Two years later, 1973, wearing a jersey emblazoned with the number 82, he had become a top-notch receiver and was a fast runner. But still, he avoided contact. At school, Randy was cordial, often visiting the coach's office on his way to class. But when the game was over, he preferred to be alone. He didn't really fit in with his teammates and made odd statements that took them by surprise. On the road with the team, Randy kept to himself. While his teammates were out drinking and letting off some steam, he was alone, reading his Bible. Back in Portland, Randy's mask was about to slip a little further down and reveal a little more. He was at the Memorial Coliseum, when out in the parking lot, he decided to expose himself. It took some time, but eventually word of it reached his coach, and again, it was swept under the rug. Then to everyone's surprise, Randy got drafted by the Green Bay Packers in Wisconsin. At 24 years old, he was signed to a one-year contract worth $16,000. And if he caught 25 passes in the season, he'd earn a $2,000 bonus. His contract stipulated that he was to maintain his peak physical condition, stay away from gambling, and wear a suit and tie in public. Randy was on the cusp of making it. He didn't hesitate to sign on the dotted line. He quit his job flipping burgers, and in April the Packers sent him to a mini-training camp. Afterwards, he returned to Portland. Then in June, the Packers sent him a first-class plane ticket, where a limo would pick him up and take him to training camp. But oddly, Randy passed on the free trip, and instead drove for 30 hours. Randy didn't make the cut. In August, during the preseason, he was released. He went on to play for the Manitoba Chiefs in nearby Oshkosh. Then at the end of the season, even though he played really well, Randy was dropped from the team. Rumors had started to swirl around his behavior off the field. Randy returned to Portland. He had three semesters left to complete his physical education degree, but instead he chose to work. Randy was restless. He never stayed at one job very long, moved from place to place, and drifted from one relationship to the next. Randy knew he wasn't going to get another chance to play pro football, and it didn't rest easy with him. He took out his anger and frustration on the women around him. Some he knew, some he didn't. In 1975, he approached two women with a knife and sexually assaulted them before stealing their purses. The knife attacks and robberies escalated. Each female victim described her attacker as athletic and good-looking. 
In March, police set up a sting operation. A female undercover officer walked through a park when Randy lunged from the shadows and attempted to rob her. Officer swooped in and arrested him. He was charged with robbery and later pled guilty to a reduced charge of second-degree robbery and was sent to the Oregon State Penitentiary. Randy served four years. When he was released in 1979, his former teammates from high school and university threw him a party. But Randy couldn't wait for a taste of freedom. He was out cruising the I-5 in his gold Volkswagen Beetle and showed up to his own party two and a half hours late. His friends weren't impressed. Later that year, Randy attended his 10-year high school reunion. Flexing his top muscles, he relished reliving his glory days drafted by the Packers. He reconnected with Sherry Ayers, whom he'd known since the second grade. Behind bars, he'd written her numerous letters, and she'd written back. Sherry had just graduated from university and was an x-ray technician at the hospital. Randy was still a ladies' man, charismatic, his body tanned and muscular. Nails manicured, hair perfectly styled, and he'd grown a mustache. He sent a photo of himself to Playgirl, and they responded that he may be chosen for an upcoming photo shoot. But that call never came. Randy was disappointed, and deep down, his rage continued to build. And he graduated to murder of someone he knew. On October 11, 1980, he showed up at Sherry's apartment. He raped his friend, then stabbed her in the neck. Sherry died at 29. Her mother just knew Randy had killed her and told police that. Investigators sent biological samples from the crime scene to the lab, but it was insufficient for testing. Then they ran a blood sample, and it was determined to be type O. Randy's blood type was B negative. Now type O can be found in either type A or B, so it didn't rule Randy out. So detectives asked him to take a polygraph, but he refused. Less than two months later, Randy paid a visit to the home of Darcy Fix. She had dated one of his former teammates. But he didn't count on her fiancé, Doug Altig, being there. Randy executed both of them with a thirty-two revolver. With three murders behind him, Randy went on a robber spree, holding up a gas station, ice cream parlor, and a lone male. Then he sexually assaulted a waitress. All described the same attacker, a man wearing a fake beard with athletic tape over his nose. Investigators noticed that the attacks all occurred within a two-mile radius of the I-5. Word soon spread and the public were on guard for the attacker called the I-5 Bandit. It appears Randy's spree halted for a few weeks over Christmas, but in the new year, 
he was on the prowl again. In Kaiser, a small town just outside of Salem, Oregon, it was a cold January day in 1981. Sherry Hall and her co-worker Lisa Garcia, both 20, were about to leave their Sunday night shift cleaning an office. When Randy sneaked inside, He held a gun in his one hand, and with his free hand, grabbed Sherry. He pushed her down the hall when he spotted Lisa. At gunpoint, he ordered both of them into a back room and sexually assaulted them. Making sure to leave no witnesses, he fired one shot, each into the back of their heads. Sherry died immediately. Lisa was still breathing. She laid still and played dead. After he left, she called police and gave them a description. Racing to the scene, a police officer noticed a man fitting that description. But it was a mile from the crime scene, and he didn't think the assailant could have run that far in just a few minutes. So he continued and drove right past Randy. Lisa provided detectives with a detailed description, including that her attacker wore a strip of tape across the bridge of his nose, similar to athletic tape worn by football players. A few weeks later, Randy traveled to California. In Reading, he kidnapped a waitress and sexually assaulted her. Then he attacked Donna Eckert and her 14-year-old daughter Janelle Jarvis in their home in Mountain Gate. He sexually assaulted Janelle, then shot them both multiple times. The next day, he traveled up the I-5 to Irica and assaulted another woman. On Valentine's Day, Randy organized a party at a hotel in downtown Portland. No one showed up. Embarrassed and angry, he went on the hunt for revenge. Candy warned her daughter Julie Wrights to be careful. Randy had met Julie when he was a bouncer at a bar and let her in with fake ID. That night, he paid Julie a visit. The two shared a glass of wine, then Julie got up to make a coffee. That's when Randy attacked her. He sexually assaulted her, then shot her. Julie died at 18. Detectives were swamped with robberies, rapes, and murders. Unbeknownst to them at the time, Randy wasn't the only serial killer on the loose. Ted Bundy and Gary Ridgway had also made the Pacific Northwest their killing grounds. In Marion County, Oregon, a detective investigating Sherry's murder suspected Randy when he learned that he'd just been released from prison. He linked Randy to many of the cases using the physical description witnesses had provided and the fact that Randy had known some of the victims. Lisa picked Randy out of a photo lineup. In March, detectives searched a room Randy was renting. They found tape that matched the kind he used to bind his victims and a spent 
32 caliber bullet. Brandy's landlord arrived home and offered detectives her phone bill. The list was a mile long, with calls Randy had made traveling up and down the I-5 from Washington to California. Detectives connected the dots and knew they had found a serial killer. Randy was charged with Sherry's murder. He pled not guilty. He went to trial in Marion County. Lisa took the stand and testified for the prosecution. Randy also took the stand in his own defense. He came across as cold, arrogant, and detached. It took the jury less than four hours to find him guilty. There was no death penalty in Oregon at the time. Randy was sentenced to 90 years. He was later charged and tried for another sexual assault and had 35 years added to his sentence. In 1999, Oregon began requiring offenders to submit DNA. Randy's DNA was entered into the database. 21 years after their deaths, new technology proved Randy had killed Julie Wright and Sherry Ayers. Eventually, Randy's DNA was also linked to the murders of Darcy Fix, Doug Alting, Donna Eklund, and her daughter Janelle Jarvis. Out of eight murders, Randy was only tried for one. Prosecutors made the decision that his sentence would keep him in prison for life, and they wished to spare the families a trial. However, they vowed that should he ever be granted a parole hearing, they would seek to press charges. As of this writing, Randy is 73 and resides in a cell at the Oregon State Penitentiary, where he still likes to flirt with the female prison guards and tell tales of his football days. Sherry's mother was grateful for cold case detectives. She told Oregon Live that she was tormented that people thought her daughter may have been responsible for what happened to her. And now that could be put to rest. She said, I wanted her memory to be a good one. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Dorothy Stratton. Paul saw beautiful 18-year-old Dorothy as his ticket to financial success and helped her become a centerfold. Then on the cusp of becoming a movie star, she was ready to move on without him. He couldn't let that happen. If you're dying to hear more, Past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music sound effect from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, 
and don't play with strangers.